Before we get into the sermon today, um, Zach, would you throw the picture of the guys dressed as ladies up on the screen? I mean, if anybody deserves recognition, it's these four guys that went to the thrift store, that dressed up as women, that wore high heels. Zach, I got to tell you, buddy, that was just, yeah, <laughs> I don't know what you guys were thinking, but thank you guys for doing that. They want I mean, even men want to be in the women's ministry, right? It's so good. Um, also, before before I told Josh, uh, for our youth ministry, I'd be peddling these on stage. We are having a pancake breakfast, and they're 10 bucks. It's at Applebee's. All you can eat pancakes, um, and it will be July 19th. And so Josh in the back, red shirt, he's got those. Um, I've got one right here, but you know what? I'm buying this one, Josh, so I'm keeping it. Um, so I'll buy that one. But we had a great time as a youth fundraiser. Last time we did this, we had a great time. We were able to send a number of kids to camp as a result of this fundraiser. And so um, it's just a really great uh, thing to do. Well, today we are getting into a study on Galatians. It's our summer series. We're simply just going through a book of the Bible, and um, it's the book of Galatians. You know, the funny thing about this is that last year, I, 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 we were um, my wife and I and my kids, we were down at the beach, and it was... You know, the beach, it's kind of sticky and hot. and For me, it's a little bit hard to sleep at the beach. And um, I just woke up one night, and I couldn't go back to sleep. And so I just thought, I had my Bible right there. So I opened up my Bible, opened it to the book of Galatians, read through the book of Galatians, slept fine after that. Um, so you're looking for a really good study. Um, you know, so I, so I read that, and I thought, man, how have I not taught through this book yet? And then this last year, we did the community Bible experience where most of our church read through the New Testament. And I read through that, and I went, man, how have I not taught through this book yet? And then a couple weeks ago, um, I'm just in my normal reading, and I got into Galatians, and I went, all right, it's time to teach through Galatians. It's so good. We've just got to get through it. So we're we're just going to dive right into it with a little bit of background. Um, Paul is the writer of the book of Galatians. Paul Um, It wasn't a book originally, it's a letter. It's a letter to a church in Galatia. Galatia is this place in Greece um, that if I had a map, I could point right to, but I don't. So it's in Greece. And you just have to take my word for it and look it up. Um, Here's the interesting fact about the Galatian church. Is Galatia, um, it comes from the root word Gaelic, which means that these were Northern Ireland Scottish immigrants who in around... Um, 80 BC came down and fought for this land. Now, if I lived in a place as cold as Northern Ireland and Scotland, I'd probably go fight for Hawaii, you know, and they went, that's, that's what they did. They went and fought for this land and, and they got this land. And so there was a lot of, I mean, there were redheads here and in Greece, these were not ethnic Greek people. I don't think anybody's really ethnically Greek. Greece is a kind of a melting pot of all kinds of different world cultures. People are ethnically Greek, by the way. If you are ethnically Greek, I massively just offended you right now. So, sorry. Um, but these were, I mean, literally Scottish-Irish people that came and settled the land. And probably in this time, there were not too many pure Scottish blood left. Probably it was very mixed in with the ethnic uh, community of the time. But these were people from a Celtic background. 
Um, and actually, it was a couple hundred years, not 80 B.C. It was, um, it, I think it was like 380 B.C. Um, is when they came and settled there. So there would have been none left, but the, the name stuck. And they became the um, Galatia, the region of Galatia, from the root of Galen, which were, as we know, of uh, Irish-Scottish descent. So Paul is writing a letter to this church. This is his first letter that he wrote to churches. And really the time in life here for the church was, how do we understand this person of Jesus? I mean, Jesus just came, he died, and and then he rose again. And now you've got this whole Jewish group of people over here and this whole group of people called Gentiles who are non-believers, who are Romans and all kinds of other ethnicities. And so how do you understand the two? How do you understand who Jesus is in the context of you're a Jew? And how do you understand who Jesus is in the context if you're a Gentile? You've never had that background. And so Galatians is operating in this tension. Galatians is operating in the tension of these different cultures. And one of the major problems that the Galatian church had was that of legalism. And um, it's a little shallow if we just call it legalism, so I'm going to explain it a little bit deeper than that. The question was, was Jesus simply a reformer of Judaism? Or was this something new entirely? Well, who was Jesus? So legalism was the main issue. According to the Galatians, um, the Galatians had this religious system that was kind of combined Christianity with the laws of Moses. And what they did was they said, as a climax to your conversion of Christ, you also need to follow all of Moses' laws. I mean, not just the Ten Commandments, but you also need to follow the sacrifice official laws. You also need to follow the laws of circumcision, and, and you need to, um, uh, you know, put marks on your body and different things like that to denote different times of, of your life. So the setting of the Galatian church really became this problem with legalism. And really, to them, you have to understand, the Jewish people, they were justified before God by sacrifice. That's how they sacrificed before, uh, that's how they were forgiven before God. They said they committed a sin, they went to the temple, they took a dove, they slit its throat, they poured all the blood out. Great stuff, right? I mean, why don't we do that today? Everybody bring your doves next week. We'll get some forgiveness of sin happening. No, but they also paid the temple tax. They kept all the festivals. But the idea always was that this was looking forward to the messianic time, to the time that the Messiah would come. The word festival in Hebrew literally means rehearsal. They were rehearsing for Christ's coming. They were rehearsing for the Messiah to come and save them. And so the church in Galatians, what they did is they said, okay, great, we'll take Jesus, but we have also are used to all this other stuff, so we're going to keep doing that. What's the problem, though, with slitting a bird's throat in church? There's a lot of problems with that. I'll tell you that right now. But the problem is it negates Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. When you take your sacrifice to the priest, what you're basically saying is, Jesus is not good enough for me. His blood isn't good enough. So when you do that, that's what what happens. That's what you're saying. And so Paul was saying, hey, you guys have made some really wrong ethical decisions. And so much so that that has become a new message that your church is spreading. So it's not just that they were not listening to the gospel. 
It's that they were practicing all these other things that were inconsistent with the sacrifice of Christ. Therefore, they were preaching a new gospel. And this is what Paul is so upset about. We're going to read it here in a minute. He is livid in this book. He is so upset. We have to understand a couple of terms. There's a group called the Judaizers, and appropriately named because these are the people who are trying to Judaize people. We're trying to make them Jews, but also allow them to uh, accept Jesus. And these are people that said, um, you had to have total obedience to the law. But they also had racial motivations. See, one of the things that they wanted to do is show that the Jews were God's chosen people to carry the law. And they were. They were God's chosen people to carry the law. But what they really wanted to do was, in the midst of the church, also have show wear their Jewish clothes and have the, the locks and, and do all their things that, that denoted that they were still Jewish, but they were also God's chosen people. In other words, they were saying, our race is better than your race. Right? Good thing racism doesn't happen around in the church anymore. You know? And this is the problem. This was racism happening in the church. And this is another reason why Paul was upset with this group. Because they set one group of people over the others. And this is actually the context of Galatians chapter 3, where we get the very famous verse, Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor there is male or female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. Paul is trying to simply address, and we're going to go over that a lot more in a couple weeks, but Paul is simply trying to address the problem that the, um, the Galatian church had with trying to be superior over another person. It was just simply a problem that they had. So literally, by the actions of the Galatian church, they slowly proclaimed a different gospel. Isn't this true with our lives? Isn't this true by the things that we do. If you told a child that you loved them, that you unconditionally loved them, and they were your treasured possession, and that you cherished them and you hugged them, but you also beat the snot out of them every day and abused them, would they not have a skewed perception of what love is? They absolutely would. They, wouldn't, they would change the message of what love is in so much so that then their kids, they would abuse their children, and say, I love you, I love you, while abusing their own children. In the name of love. Because by our actions, we can skew messages. And we do this all the time. Especially when we tell people we love them, and then we gossip behind their back. Is that what love is? We change the meaning of things by our actions. And this is exactly what the Galatian church did. Now, you can't change what the gospel is. They just preached a new one. So the gospel will always be the gospel, but they just simply um, began saying a new one with their lives. It can slowly seep into our own lives. I mean, think about um, our own consumerism within the church. What's the message that we, that we put out there? We, we even say, oh, you know, um, God has so blessed me with this, uh, you know, really expensive thing or this really expensive house. I mean, and that's, that's nice, but also it kind of puts the message across is that the good news is that if you follow God, you'll get everything you want. But the problem is God knows we can't handle all those things sometimes. And so we don't get them. And then we're like, God, where were you when? And God's probably like, well, if I gave you that, it would have been like dynamite. You couldn't handle it. So the problem is a lot of times our practice 
begins to change what is preached. People know us as Christians in our workplaces, at home, um, around friends. And then how do we approach the world in that? What message do people get from our lives? What message is preached when you walk around and talk to your neighbors? And this was the chief issue of the Galatian church. So, by their actions, they changed the gospel message. But what we need to understand is that there was not a problem with the law itself. The law of Moses is good. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. Biblical Old Testament law is indispensable for distinguishing between good and evil. It's good to have the law. But moral rules are always subordinate to the moral attitude or disposition of love. So the moral attitude and disposition of love, your character, what's happening inside your heart, is always chief among what should be happening. And then it's the moral rules. It flows out of the heart. So technically, if you were following the laws of Moses correctly, you would love God and love people. And if you truly love love God and you truly love people, then the rest of the commandments, it would just be a wash. You would absolutely do that. You wouldn't think of not doing it. And this is simply what Jesus came proclaiming. It's like, hey, love God, love people, and the rest will follow from that. If you truly love people, you're going to honor your father and mother, right? If you truly love God, you're going to worship him. I mean, you're going you're gonna to devote your life to him. And so this was the chief issue, is that for the Galatian church, they put moral law above their own internal character. The problem is you can keep the law in many cases and not love somebody. And Jesus simply came to say, hey, it's the other way around. So let's get right into it this morning. Galatians chapter 1. What I'm going to do is actually compare a couple other greetings in Paul's letters just so you see what Paul really feels to the Galatians. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me, to the churches in Galatia, grace and peace to you from our God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom glory forever, um, to whom be glory forever. Amen. I am, not, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Jesus of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel, other than the one preached to you, let them be under God's curse. We have already said so, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than the one you accepted, Let them be under God's curse. Not the jolly, happy greeting that Paul tends to give to his churches. Listen to what he says to the the church in uh, Philippi. Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ. And I'm changing the tone of my voice to denote, to show the difference there. To God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for you, I always pray with joy because your partnership in the gospel from the first day till now. I mean, that's drastically different than I am ashamed at you. 
you are terrible people. I mean, that's basically what he said to the church in Galatians. What are you doing? So you think he's a little upset? Absolutely. Ephesians chapter 1, listen to this. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God, our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise to be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. I mean, it's a love fest to these other churches. 1 Thessalonians 1, 1 through 3. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from our God the Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God our Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has been blessed, who has blessed us in heavenly realms with spiritual blessings in Christ. In seeing Paul's other letters, we really do begin to understand just how shocked and angry Paul is with this church in Galatia. I mean, he is beginning to lay the hammer down. He is laying the law down with this church. He's not lobbing any softballs. He's saying, hey, you really do well by reading this letter line for line because I'm not going to hold anything back. I'm throwing all the punches. So what I want to do today is simply go over his intro and talk about how revolutionary it was and what Paul is doing in all of this. So it starts out by saying, Paul, an apostle, sent not from men, nor by man, but by Jesus Christ, the God, and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. The word apostle is this word meant to denote a personal agent of. And so we think about that. What does that mean in our realm today, in our world today? You know, if you would have the president and the secretary of state, and the secretary of state is sort of like that, that chief ambassador of the president. When the secretary of state goes to another head of state, and they're talking, they're saying the, the will of the president. They're giving what the president thinks and wants. A good secretary of state will not say what they want, but what the president wants. This is what Paul is saying he is like. He is an ambassador. He speaks the words that God uh, gives him. He is a representative. And what he's saying is he is not being called by man or by men. And we have to understand this phrase because one of the things that's happening now is this little conflict between the original 12, well, 11 now, um, apostles and Paul. Because Paul came out of, and we're going to get into his story next week a lot more, but Paul came out of a setting where he was um, persecuting the church and where he was killing Christians because they were not keeping the law. And then you have these people who, understandably so, you know, Peter, who they, all, they call Caiaphas in this letter, Peter and, and all the other um, disciples, Matthew, all of them, who were a little bit, you know, and, and probably rightfully so, just a little bit scared of this guy, Paul. I mean, they know now, they know he used to persecute the church, and now he loves them. And, and, and they've had some conversations, and we're going to get into that later in this book uh, to help understand the, the conversations they had. But what he's saying is, I wasn't sent by those guys. I wasn't sent by Peter. I got knocked off my horse. I got knocked, I got blinded for three days, and, and, and God told me that I was persecuting him. And I need to follow him now. I mean, he's basically relating his divine conversion to this church and saying, hey, these are going to be the words of God I'm speaking to you. This is the only place that he wrote that 
in, um, in his other letters. In 1 Corinthians, he wrote him a pretty scathing introduction as well. But this one is pretty scathing. He wants them to know that even though Peter is technically the head of the church, the orders didn't come from him. And sent from, not from man or by man, but by Jesus, is foreshadowing the topic that they'll get into in the entire rest of the letter, which is essentially the topic of legalism. Paul also here is reestablishing his spiritual authority over a church. And then he says, to the churches in Galatia, there's always this little formula that Paul does. He says, grace and peace to you from our God and Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to hit on this a second because this is um, really big in Paul's writing. He always writes grace and peace. And we want to know, like, why does he do that? I mean, if you're not a student of first century literature, you probably don't even think twice about it. But the Greeks always wrote grace, grace to you. That was a Greek word. And the Jews always wrote shalom or peace to you. And so what Paul's doing is he's putting the two together to denote that the letter is both for Jews and for Gentiles. There's a big di- discrimination at this point. And so what Paul is saying is this is not just for Jews or not just for Gentiles, but it's for both of you. And one of the things that's really um, important here is the theological theme of grace. I mean, it's, grace is like the simplest um, thing that we could ever think of. It's, it's free salvation. God gives, uh, gives us life for free. It's not by our works, but by his work, that what God did on the cross is for us, and that we are redeemed by his blood. It's the simplest, but it could also be the deepest. Great grace is not opposed to effort but it's opposed to earning. We can't earn grace. It takes effort to live like Jesus. And there's one Christian commentator who says that we ought to burn as much grace in every moment that a 747 burns on takeoff. That we live by grace. Every word, every breath that we have is done by grace because when we are living in a state of grace, that means we are leaning completely and fully on Jesus. So everything we done we do is done in a state of grace. When we rely on our own efforts, we simply get burned out. But when we rely on grace, we rely on God for the fuel of our lives. Peace. Peace should be the result of that grace. Or simply the way one always lives. But peace um, is the deep rest and assurance of God that comes from a complete abandonment to God. Peace is the deep rest and assurance um, of good that always comes from complete abandonment to God. So putting together grace and peace, this really wasn't a common literary thing at all that Paul was doing. But Paul was trying to bring these two groups of people together. One group that tried to claim superiority over the other and say, listen, you're both equal, and this letter is for the both of you. Verse 4 who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of God our Father, to whom we have the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is one of those early confessions of faith. A confession of faith is simply something that you say. So one of the earliest confessions of the church was, was um, the, the man who said, Father, have mercy on me, a sinner. And it was one of the earliest things that the church would say that the monastic fathers in the desert, starting as early as 300 A.D., 
would begin to repeat that over and over again. Father, forgive me, a sinner. It's called the Jesus Prayer. And we have early confessions and creeds because, you know, books and materials and literacy was not readily available. So we had these different creeds and things that we said. And, and one of them was that he gave himself for our sins in order to rescue us from the present evil age. It's a common formula that was very early on. It's one of the ways to remember what God has done for us. That the Son of God actually came down from heaven and, and took, got rid of his throne of grace, got rid of his throne of glory, and, and came among us to wash away our past, to give us a new future, to give us a second shot at it, to get away all that junk that's messed up in our lives, that is simply what God has done for us. So right there in the very beginning, Paul is not putting that in there just to put it in there. He's putting it in there to remind them that this is a free gift and that you don't need to bring a dove and slit its throat in front of your church and that you don't need to bring a grain offering and that you don't need to keep all the festivals and you don't need to pay the temple tax and you don't need to, to you know, just go on and on and on and on and on. Jesus finished all of that. When Jesus said, it is finished, all that was done. And so what, what Paul is saying here is this is a free gift. He's directly addressing their own legalistic tendencies to want to try and keep the law. It's a reminder of the grace that they have received and so quickly abandoned. Verse 6, and we get into the juicy stuff. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. One of the things I need to say about that phrase, I am astonished. This was a common way that if you were uh, a Greek person writing a letter and you were upset, you would say, I am astonished that you have so-and-so, whatever. We don't typically tend to communicate that way today. I mean, we typically tend to communicate probably a little bit more of a peaceful way with others. And we should probably do that. I'm not saying that this is simply a literary device of the day that Paul is using. And so uh, when you're upset that your friend has done something wrong, you probably shouldn't write a letter. Dear Bill, I am astonished about how terrible you are. I mean, you should probably be a little more graceful than that. But this is a very common way of speaking to people back in the first century. And then he says, uh, you're turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preached to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. So what is the gospel that Paul gave them? The gospel that Paul gave them was that there is nothing that you have to do to get on good, God's good side. There's nothing that you can physically do to please God. There's nothing. That the only one that makes you look good to the Father is the blood of Jesus Christ. And that you are freely redeemed. This is a free gift. And it is given to you for you to have and for you to give away. There's a gospel of grace that you cannot earn your salvation. So many times we want little things that we could do, huh? 
we want like we, we want to like build up spiritual points in heaven you know which is kind of a funny thought to think about it's like well man maybe if we go to this food kitchen or serve the poor or post a cool bible verse on facebook or something like that it's like hey we earn spiritual points and and you know we're getting street cred with god or you know something we think that that we could earn our way into it but even the greatest of them the greatest of the christian authors the greatest of of people who have who have lived life following jesus they were great because they simply said i don't deserve it i don't deserve one second of it i don't deserve to be forgiven my sins are so great i don't deserve it and yet jesus came and gave himself for me i love the way um C.S. Lewis puts this. He kind of makes it so that we have to think about it. C.S. Lewis said, either Jesus was a raving lunatic or the Son of God. And it can't be any other option than that. You know, somebody comes around right now and they go on TV and they're like, oh, I'm the Son of God. I'm Jesus returned. What do we say? Raving lunatic, right? This guy's crazy. Or he was really the Son of God. And then C.S. Lewis goes on to say in The Problem of Pain, he goes on to say, there's so much evidence from world history that he actually was the Son of God that we now have to turn our attention to Jesus actually being the Son of God. And so we look at that and go, wow, that's interesting, but what does it matter? That means grace is real. That when we look at to it and we really put our minds to it and we really look at the evidence of it, and that history really was changed by this was he just a great moral teacher, or was he actually the Son of God? If he was a great moral teacher, he has no authority to take over our sins on himself and forgive them. But if he was the Son of God, then he actually could take our sins, and that he could turn and purify us and make us white as snow. That he could take that junk, the stuff that you said that was so hurtful that you could never take back, and that he can cause reconciliation in those relationships. If he was just a good moral teacher, he could never do that. But if he was the son of God, he could absolutely do that. So this was a church that loved moralism. They loved being moral. They loved looking like good moral people. They liked hanging around other good moral people. They were their friends of good moral people. But they didn't necessarily actually have a conversion to Christ because they still lived as slaves to the law rather than free I was in a church a few weeks ago um, preaching in a men's group. And, um, and we had table conversation afterwards, and I came back and preached again. And one guy at the table, he said, can I just say something? He said, yeah, sure. The guy is 75 years old. He stood up and said, I have led every single men's thing you could think of at this church. I've taken groups to Mexico. I've done missions trips. I mean, you name it, I've done it. And he just started, I mean, literally, he went on for like five minutes listing all the different roles he had at that church in a volunteer capacity. And he said, and I accept Jesus Christ when I was 10. And this man was 75 years old. And then he began to tear up and he said, but it was just last year that I realized that Jesus really wanted to have a relationship with me and that I could be free from just trying to be a really good moral person. And that Jesus wanted to actually change my inside of who I was so that on the outside I was a better person. And he began to tear up. He's like, it was just last year. I just realized we could be living here in a church just wanting to be good moral people and wanting to have friends with other moral people because moral people are fun. 
you can make bad jokes around them and they won't tell on you, right? Being around good moral people is a, is a fun thing to do. By the way, the, you probably got that. You're not really a good moral person if you're making dirty jokes and bad jokes around other good moral people and not telling on each other, not holding each other accountable. But the point is, sometimes in our striving for great morality, we miss the point that Jesus actually wants to change who we are on the inside and make us into the kind of people who would always be moral and not really, you know, have to lay it all out in a legalistic way onto what we need to do every day. Jesus wants to change our hearts. I don't care if you've been in the church just this moment, just today, or if you've been in the church your entire life. Sometimes we get preached to a gospel of moralism, of being good moral people. And you know what? You just let that good moralness shine to other people, and then other people will be converted into being good moral people. But we don't want to convert people into being good moral people. We want to show people that Jesus actually is the best way, the best teacher of life. And that Jesus actually was God. That Jesus actually did change our lives. See, for Paul, he understood this because he was a Jew. He was living under the bondage of the law. And then he came into the freedom of Christ. And he understood how great it was. And we have to be careful, again, that our own legalism or our own whatever our actions are, don't become our gospel. We have to ask, what is the good news? What did Jesus say the good news was? You know, a lot of times in a room this size, you, you go around and you ask people, what's the good news? We can't articulate it in a good way. We can't articulate it in a good way. Let me tell you, here's what Jesus said the good news was. There's a couple different places where it specifically in the Bible spells out. Mark chapter 1, Jesus says, repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God is near. What does that mean? That means that God is present in our lives, and even after he's gone, he's near. He's closer than the air you breathe and wants to have a relationship so deep with you that changes your entire core and makes your character just like his. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul, again, spells out what the good news is. And he says this, he, he basically goes through the first six verses there. He goes through and, and says that Jesus came as a man, but was God as well. The two, the two are one. And that he died on the cross. He forgave us of all of our sins. He resurrected from the dead. And I don't know much about anything, but I'm a changed person now, is what Paul said. Somebody's digging We have to be very careful of what our actions preach. Do they preach moralism and being a good person? What in the world is that? <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> as long as it's not like a bomb or something, you know? They'll run out of the building. I, I will lead the way. The door right there. <laughs> you know, I think... Um, Sorry, the dinging threw me off. One of the things that Paul does here is he researches spiritual authority over his church. And he says, hey, I started you. I started this church. I preached you a gospel. Now get back and listen to me. And that's not such a bad thing. 
you know, we tend to look at spiritual authority these days and go, you know, it just is messed up. There was a day 100 years ago when this sermon would have been in the newspaper the next day. You know, there was a lot more spiritual authority back then. And then in the last 100 years, preachers have done nothing but abuse that spiritual authority. And so we look at spiritual authority through jaded lenses today. We look at it and we see the different televangelists. We see the different folks who have just squandered money and had relationships with prostitutes and really just messed their churches up, stole money from the coffers, done just unimaginable things. And so spiritual authority almost looks like nothing. But if you were here last week and we talked about raising spiritual giants, that's what true spiritual authority is. When you begin to get taller than the rest, when spiritually your stature begins to rise. In other words, as you rise, your, your humility rises with you. And as you grow in the character of Christ, then all that pride begins to go away. As you grow in the character of Christ, you begin to be a little bit more sure about what God wants and what God's will is. And so you begin to lean into something called spiritual authority. Spiritual authority in the Bible was, was never, um, it, you know, it was always gentle. It was always humble. It was always loving in the Bible. And yet we've seen such a bad example of spiritual authority in the last hundred years. Pastors losing their cool in front of groups of people. Pastors doing unimaginable things. But we need to get back to a point where we have clear spiritual authority. And I'm not simply talking about myself because I really do believe myself along with the board at this church is a spiritual authority. Because if we don't submit to spiritual authority in our own lives, then how are we ever when we are messing up, going to listen. Here's what happens today in churches. Most churches, 95% of churches out there, somebody comes to you and says, listen, I just noticed that you've been doing this, and I'm not trying to come down on you. I'm simply trying to say it's not healthy. It's not healthy for you, and, and I just want to see if you want to talk about that. I noticed it. 95% of the time, what happens? Out the door. Because we don't submit to spiritual authority. And I'm not trying to set anything up as a totalitarian thing. Because the true spiritual authority is the most humble and the most gentle person in the room. The one that is most conformed to the likeness of Christ. That's the true spiritual authority. And what Paul is doing here is he's taking back spiritual authority. When you have spiritual authority, you can rebuke and correct, and it's a great thing. The word rebuke in the scriptures, the way Paul uses it, means to honor somebody. And so when you rebuke them, you, you honor them by saying, I, I can't stand to see you going down this road anymore. I've got to, to walk with you through this. But we don't have spiritual authorities much anymore. People tend to just bolt the second they hear that somebody thinks they're doing something wrong. So I've got two questions for us. What, one, what gospel do you preach with your life? What is it? What do your actions show the good news is? What would you say good news is? If Paul were to write you a letter and say, I'm astonished because you've done this, you've perverted the gospel. Have you done that? What's the good news that you're preaching with your life? And the second question I have for you is, where are you in your life or who are you submitting to for spiritual authority in your own life? 
Somebody other than your spouse. I mean, because the safe answer is, oh, my wife. Or my husband. But the question we really want to get to this morning is, are you submissive to somebody in your own life? Because if you're not submissive to God or to people in spiritual authority, how will you ever be submissive to God? And the bigger question is, how will you ever even want to be in heaven? Because that's like complete submissiveness and freedom. It sounds paradoxical, but it's not. Who are you submissive to? Quick story. When we ask the question, what other gospel are you preaching with your life? I just gotta, I've got to be totally out in the front, open and clean with you guys. Ten years ago when I started in youth ministry, I was driving a group of kids. Car stopped short right in front of me. We were on Arrow Highway, and we almost crashed. And I got both feet on the brakes. And we were screeching. And, and I don't even remember this, but all my kids remember it. So it must have happened. as like my life flashed before my eyes. And I yelled, oh, shoot. But not the good one. Or not the bad one. No, wait. Yeah, not the good one. The bad one. And for like 10 years, kids have really been hammering me on that. You know, I mean, they won't let it go. There's this kid that I still see today, and it's like, I didn't even think about it. I was, I was new in ministry, and it just, just came out. I mean, I don't curse. That's not my, that's not my normal uh, MO. You know, I never do that. And then all of a sudden, and the kids are like, oh, yeah, you're really a Christian. Now you're just faking this. We have to be really careful about what we do and what we say. But the other, kind of the good end of this is one of the kids in the car told me, you know, later on they told me this. They said, when, you know, when you said that, I kind of just figured anybody could be a Christian. So I, it felt really good. <laughs> but, I, you know, I felt like I could be a Christian too. I was like, wow, well, I'm glad my failures have gone to lead you to Christ. And then who are you submissive to? And like I said, I know that when we think of spiritual authority today, so many things come to mind that are not good. But basically and biblically, the spiritual authorities were kind, humble. They were always aware of their own sin. They were in constant prayer, and they spoke the truth in love. Maybe you're here today and you simply say, man, I am practicing a gospel of moralism. I am practicing a gospel of getting whatever I want whenever I want it. I'm practicing a gospel of satisfying all my own desires. I want to simply say to you, that's not the gospel. What the gospel truly is, is surrendering yourself, placing your confidence in Jesus and saying, Jesus, I need to lean on your grace Every single moment, every single day, I cannot do this alone. The gospel is free, freely given, so that you could have freedom. The gospel is complete forgiveness of sin. The gospel is not having to feel ashamed or guilty anymore because of that junk you've done in the past, because the enemy wants you to feel guilty. For it. That's the thing the enemy's holding on to. Ooh, guilt and shame. The gospel is complete freedom. You pray with me for a moment. Maybe there's some of you here today with eyes closed, heads bowed. You're just thinking, man, I have a completely different gospel in my life. 
I'm just a moral person or I really like my stuff, whatever it might be. I like to satisfy my own desires. I'm going to do something really old-fashioned right now. And maybe you simply need to repent. It's as simple as saying, God, this is this was the gospel I was living by. I need to surrender that to you. Change the way I'm thinking. And ask you to lead me in this new road. And I want to challenge you, whether it's women's ministry or men's ministry or somebody you just feel comfortable with in this group, find spiritual authority in your life and submit to that. Father, I pray that you would lead our church up into being spiritual giants. Father, that you would raise us up in such a way that the world is happy that you made this church and put us right here in this little plot of land in Covina. God, would we preach the gospel with all tenacity and ferocity? And God, would we simply be so aware of everything that's happening in our lives and the, the, the presentation that we might be giving to the world? So Father, as you lead us, help us to preach the gospel of freedom. Help us to preach the gospel of your life, your death, and your resurrection, and your one day coming again. God, help us to preach that gospel. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.